Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military, but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 133 of the Headspace and Timing podcast. Continuing with the series highlighting partners of the Warrior Wellness Alliance, today's show is a conversation with the executive director of Team Red, White, and Blue, J.J. Penner. In this episode, we talk about how Team RWB is paying attention to the psychological benefits of their organization, as well as the physical wellness aspects. It's not only okay, like it happens to everybody. And I always say to veterans, I'm like, listen, you you were taught to take action when you were in the military. Right? No, no one ever taught you to sit around and do nothing. You were taught to take action. And this is nothing different. Not only is it okay for you to, to go seek resources, you should be seeking resources, right? This isn't a permission-based thing. Like this is an obligation. If you feel this happening, don't wait for someone to, to tell you to. So, like certainly sometimes it takes that, but go do it. Like, you know, take the action to get ahead of it. Welcome to the Headspace and Timing Podcast, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes around veteran mental health. My name is Dwayne France, and I'm a retired Army non-commissioned officer and a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After retiring from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, then you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set correctly, however, it was just a useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support service members, veterans, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey folks, welcome back to the Headspace and Timing podcast. You know, there's been a lot of things that go into mental health and wellness in our post-military life, and we want to bring a lot of them to you. As regular listeners might know, I've been trying to highlight all the partners of the Warrior Wellness Alliance, a program developed by the George W. Bush Institute. We introduced the Warrior Wellness Alliance back in episode 54 with Casey Kelly. The Warrior Wellness Alliance is a program that's trying to connect health and wellness providers like the Wounded Warrior Project Warrior Care Network with peer veteran networks like Team Rubicon, The Mission Continues, and my guest today, the Executive Director of Team Red, White, and Blue, J.J. Pinter. J.J., welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Duane. Yeah, it's always fun when, when we're talking to other podcasts, or the, the, um, uh, things are a little easier. Uh, you guys are doing a lot of great stuff. Obviously, um, Team RWB is, is doing some great things in the veteran community and, and definitely want to talk about all those things. But I want to give you an opportunity to tell the audience a little bit about yourself and sort of how you got here. Yeah, it's been a long journey. I was looking the other day and I'm, I think I've been at Team Red, White and Blue in a full-time capacity for seven and a half years now, which is crazy to me. Um, grew up in a small town in the Midwest in Michigan on a, on a small farm. 
you know, went to, got lucky enough to get into West Point, went there, I think two weeks after I graduated from high school and graduated in 2001. Um, serendipitously, uh, I was, I was at the, I was a field artillery officer. I was at the field artillery officer basic course when the towers came down, I was out in the field on a, on a, at a firing point. And that really defined my entire time in the military. I mean, it happened when I was a brand new second lieutenant. I was, I was going to Fort Hood immediately after that. And we all knew it was just a matter of time until we were going to invade Iraq. And so that thing really defined my whole time because we immediately got stop lost and stop moved and all of that stuff. I ended up not going in, in the first wave. Um, I was in the first cavalry division. So I ended up going to OIF two in 2004 and ended up doing that tour. And then realizing that, you know, the active duty military wasn't the place that I wanted to, to end up. So I finished my time up and then I spent a few years in the national guard afterwards. So that's kind of my, my military experience. I always say I'm a, people ask me what I did. And though I am technically a field artillery officer, I always, I say that with reticence because I didn't really shoot any artillery. <laughs> we didn't even like really take our, our guns with us when we deployed. So and then I guess after that, I spent a couple of years, I did the thing that, you know, a lot of former army officers do. They go out in the private sector and, and work in, I worked for some big companies and just really missed that sense of purpose in my life. And a friend of mine that I served with started Team White and Blue, and I had the opportunity to transition over. See, and that's uh, it definitely being at Team RWB for seven and a half years in, in one organization longer than you're even in the military almost, right? Yeah. And, and especially those who are in the military, we're used to changing jobs every two or three years, um, which like you, my first job after retirement was I was there for 18 months and, and settling into what we, we wanted to find. Uh, but it's interesting. You were in that that post 9-11 graduation class or, or the 9-11 graduating class. That was yeah. the last class that graduated thinking peacetime army. Right. The, the following class knew. Right. And so it was a huge shift. And I've talked to some of um, the it probably a, a couple of classes after you. But yours, when you graduated, you were thinking it's just going to continue on the way it was. Well, I, I've had this conversation with myself many times. And I and I say, I hope that my decision making wouldn't be any different than it was. But the reality of it is that there was when I was in mid 90s in high school, there was there hadn't been any wars for a long time since since Gulf War One, and there was really no wars on the horizon. And it's joining the military seemed like a pretty safe bet at the time. Now, I've always been a, a pretty pretty patriotic kid. My dad was was in the army. Um, he didn't retire, you know, but he was in the army for a few years. And I hope I would have made the same decision had it been a wartime kind of thing. But I, you know, I don't know. But I will say this. I've heard stories, you know, everyone eats at West Point, everyone eats together in the dining hall. And I can't imagine what it would be like to be sitting in there as a cadet in the mid 2000s when they're, you know, announcing dead graduates on a weekly basis. Uh, that, that would be a very sobering experience. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I've heard some people parallel that to, you know, the, the graduating class right when Pearl Harbor happened, right? Or the West Point class when, when Pearl Harbor occurred. Um, because by that, you know, before then, it was always, you know, we're isolationist and we're not getting in, um, you know, and, and there was some rumblings and stuff. Um, but I've but I have heard parallels between your graduating class and that one. 
um, having to make a pretty big shift. And I will also say, you know, some inside baseball, I think my class always felt a little bit uh, because we weren't, we weren't the millennial 2000 class. And then 2002 is the 200th anniversary. So it's like the 200th commemorative class. So we were like wedged in between these two, like important, you know, monumental year groups. But I guess we were the nine 11 class, which is not really what you want to be known as, but that's what it is. And, and, and to that point, right. West point is a, a very close knit community of, of course I had, I've had the honor of, Serving with West Pointers, my uh, commander on my MIT team, my sector in Afghanistan, he was from West Point. Um, and, and so there is a camaraderie, right? The long gray line. And then, of course, in the military, um, we have that. And, and you mentioned that you miss that, right? A lot of veterans miss that. We talk about this lack of purpose and meaning. It's not all about PTSD and TBI. Um, but that's what you missed after you had gotten out of the military and you were working, you were quote unquote successful. But that connection, that camaraderie, that what am I doing that satisfies me, that's a piece that was missing in your life. Yeah, there was two things. The first was this really interesting juxtaposition. I was I was out of the Army and I was working in corporate America. And I was kind of out of the Army. I was in the National Guard still, but it didn't really feel like I was in the Army. And in one sense, I was, I was successful there. I was, you know, I was finding success. I was, was able to do a good job. I felt like I was able to, to outwork my peers. But in other sense, if when you strip it all away, what I found is that it's really like you can kind of church it up and talk about taking care of customers or whatever you want. But really, it's just you're trying to, to, to generate profit and you're trying to make a bunch of rich people richer is really when you strip it all away, that's what it is. And I just had a tough time getting my head around that being the thing that I was going to spend so much time away from. I I had just had a son, my first child. And I was like, is this the thing I'm going to spend so much time away from my family for? It, It just didn't make a lot of sense to me. That was part of it getting my head around that. But the second part was I started seeing my friends that I went to school with and served with, really, this is, so this is 2007, 2008 ish. Right. And I'm seeing them really struggle with the transition out of the military. And I just remember thinking these folks have everything in the world going for them. They have support, they have supportive families, you know, they, they don't have, they have good jobs. They don't have, they don't have all of the stresses that come with they have a support structure. And then I remember thinking like, well, what the heck is going on with some of my soldiers who don't have the support structure? Like they don't come from supportive families. Like they don't have education to fall back on. Um, you know, they there's financial stress, there's marital stress, there's all these other things. And I just remember thinking, man, if, if these like highly functioning people that I know are struggling with the transition and their mental health, what the heck is happening to everybody else? Now I didn't, at the time, I didn't really understand mental health. I, you know, and it was still kind of a taboo thing to talk about, but that was, those were the two things that really got me kind of clicking about, Hey, I see this as a problem and I think I want to be involved in this problem. And see, and that's about the time again, like you said, um, junior military officers, maybe in the mid nineties. And, and you didn't really get out mid career, but there was so much going on. You, you spent so much life, so to speak, um, in, in these deployments and these repetitive deployments that, you know, captains and newly promoted majors were just like, you know, this is it. I, I've got to get out and I've got to move on because we crammed a career's worth in this short amount of time. Uh, and then this idea of, you know, the network, right? You, you have the support, this family support, or even the support of your friends. Um, and generally your needs are met. You're able to find a job. You're able to have stable housing. Um, 
And yet there still are these struggles. And again, not all PTSD, but this purpose and meaning piece was huge. And then you're right. A lot of veterans struggled with getting their needs met, right? When, when you were deployed, when I was deployed, we didn't have to worry about where our food came from, right? And somebody gave that to us. We didn't have to worry about yeah. our shelter that was provided for us. When you get out of the military, you have to learn how to meet your needs in a new way and you're not familiar with it in some struggle. Um, and, and so how was it that you found Team RWB to fill that particular aspect of your life? Really, Team RWB found me. So the founder of Team Red, White, and Blue was this guy named Mike Irwin, who we, we he and I were, were second lieutenants together in the first cab, uh, very briefly. And we had a very good kind of friend of a friend. And Mike is one of these guys that when he sees a problem, he just attacks it. And Mike had done... Um, you know, we were in the first cab together and then he was the S2 for, I think, third special forces group and was going to go back and teach. He, he was like hot off a deployment from Afghanistan and was going to go back and teach at West Point. And so he's like hot off a really tough deployment. And he's, you know, a month later in Ann Arbor, Michigan, going to grad school and re- like found very little to no support there. Mike has always been very much into physical fitness and running. And he and I get, you know, found some solace in doing that. And then also found some solace in trying to make friends and social connections. And he just thought, okay, there's something to this. He tried to work with a couple of other existing veteran serving organizations and they, they weren't interested in working with him. So he thought, well, I'm just going to start my own organization. And that was how Team RWB really started. So I got an email from him. I still have it in 2009 and saying, hey, I'm going to start this thing called Team Red, White, and Blue. We're going to do one kind of national event in Minneapolis in the Twin Cities. We're going to all run this marathon together. You know, would you come? And and I said yes. And that was kind of the beginning of the journey for me. So I was involved in a volunteer capacity for a few years. I started the chapter here in Louisville, Kentucky, where I live, before I had the opportunity to, to come work for Team Red, White, and Blue. So from such humble beginnings, empires are made, right? You know, that's the, uh, I mean, and, and, and I think especially is just, look, we, we want to do something. We need to take action. Let's figure out something to do. Um, not understanding what it's going to be in the long run. So maybe now would be a good time to sort of explain, uh, for maybe listeners who aren't familiar, um, not that I can imagine there are much, but, um, what Team RWB is and, and sort of the organization as a whole. Yeah, it's it's pretty simple, and I think it's actually very simple, and I think that's where where the power comes in the organization. But in in very elementary terms, we're a chapter based organization. We're in about two hundred cities around the country, you know, most every major city, and we are a place where veterans can get together with with other veterans and supportive members of the community and build relationships and be involved in some, some meaningful stuff, mostly physical fitness. Um, exercise is, is a hallmark of our organization, but that's not all of it. And it's, it's as simple as that. So we are trying to create genuine relationships at the local level with veterans and we're trying to help keep them healthy. And it's very simple, but it's very effective to go one layer up. Many veterans, um, have a, in, in my or our opinion, have a, have a less than optimal transition out of the military for a whole host of reasons. And there's, we can, and we can talk some of the reasons about, you know, why that happens and, you know, why we believe some a little bit differently than maybe the common uh, conception about why that happens. But 
it, it happens. And so from a high level, if we can get our hands around veterans on the front end and help them have a successful transition, they're not going to get to a lot of these negative outcomes that people talk about, uh, you know, when you talk about kind of the wheel of horrors that can happen to veterans. And so early on, it was, look, just connecting veterans to veterans um, and the mental health aspect. I mean, we all, you know, uh, the zen of running and things like that, you know, this this idea of running is as much in, in, in speaking about running, but even physical fitness is as much psychological. It is physical, um, you know, ask any, you know, elite athlete and it'll be the, the psychology of it. Um, but it, it seems like in the last, I'd say, five years or so that I've seen is that Team RWB has really been focusing on the impact of your core missions on mental health and wellness. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's interesting because in the mid-2000s, there were a ton of veteran-serving organizations, nonprofits that got started. And there was a lot of people that had really good intentions and they wanted to help and they started organizations to help. But good intentions does not build a scalable organization, right? You need to be able to, to, to demonstrate positive outcomes and efficacy. Like you need to be able to show that what your organization is doing is actually helping people, is changing the positive trajectory of their lives. So I think we all like innately knew like, hey, physical fitness is good for you. Um, being around supportive, you know, po- this whole positive psychology, which is one of the tenets of our organization, one of the, you know, this idea that positive relationships and other people matter, like that's good for you. And then this idea of service and veterans miss serving and veterans make good leaders. Like the people kind of knew those things intuitively, but the data, the evidence base didn't exist to show that, Hey, being involved in these things really does have an effect on your life, a positive effect on your life. And so we have from very early on have been trying to be involved as a thought leader pushing this from a research and academic perspective to say like, Hey, we need to change. Like, you know, we don't agree with this whole kind of broken veteran narrative and we want to be involved in helping change that, but not from a kind of grandstanding, you know, who can shout the largest, excuse me, the loudest approach, but from a taking a knowledge creation, evidence-based academic approach to it which is not as fun or sexy as some of the other things for sure. Yeah. It's, uh, counting the numbers uh, is, is definitely not as, as fun as, you know, running a race. Well, well, the other thing is Dwayne is it's hard, right? So you're inherently trying to quantify something that's qualitative. And the example, the example there's a, our former research director neighbors is his Caroline angel. She used this example and it really stuck with me. It's like, how do you quantify how much you love someone, right? Do you love your wife the same amount that you love your kids or your, you know, your second cousin or your, you know, in-laws or whatever you, you love them all, but you love them differently. Is there a way that you can quantify that and understand it and maybe compare it to how other people feel about members of their family? Like it can absolutely be done in a kind of a clinically valid way. It's just hard. It's really hard to come up with that. And that's kind of what we're trying to do here when we're talking about these like abstract things like wellness and well-being. It's like, well, how do you really quantify that in a way that is consistent and valid? And that's the kind of, you know, that's the reason a lot of people don't do it is it's hard and it can be messy. 
Right. And it's, it's very easy, I think, to, to measure the things, you know, am I, and, and not so much feeling better, but sort of the, the changes on the PTSD scales and things like that. Um, and, and what you are talking about is this thing, purpose and meaning, this, this existential kind of stuff. And there's a whole branch of psychology, existential psychology that can dive into this, you know, Irvin Yalom, Rollo May and Victor Frankel and Man's Search for Meaning and all that. Um, but again, it's, it's very hard to, to, you know, quantify that sense of purpose. I mean, like you said, it is possible. Um, but you were talking earlier about some of the challenges in transition. You know, you and I touched on um, the, and, and this is where I've talked before about the comprehensive veteran mental health. Um, yeah. You know, the medical model of PT of mental health is PTSD, TBI, addiction, and depression, right? There's medications for those things. But what it seems like the team RWB list B is trying to do is really that other side of transition stress is that connectivity to others, uh, satisfying that need for community um, and establishing that purpose and meaning. Um, that's what I'm getting when you were talking about the different aspect of transition. But, but what were you talking about earlier when you were looking at your viewpoint? So there is a, you know, this is my opinion and some people might argue with me on this, but, um, I believe it pretty strongly right now. There's a perpetuated opinion. I believe that the the quality of your transition is a is it directly proportional to the amount of benefits that you're able to use or get your hands on, right? So we have a very benefits centric mindset to transition. Hey, I got I was able to like get eighty percent, you know, disability rating. So like, woohoo, my trans, you know, this this is defining a good transition. I would argue that that's not the right barometer for, and and in some cases that's actually negatively proportional to a good transition. I would argue that a, a, a successful transition is one that's rooted in well-being and we should be have a, a wellness or a well-being centric mindset to transition. And this is what I tell, I tell veterans this all the time. I'm like, listen, uh, there are three things that the data plays out pretty consistently that a lot of people fail at during their transition process. And you can do them all yourself. No one else needs to do any of these three things for you. And if you do these things, you're pretty likely to have a successful transition. One, the average veteran gains 40 pounds three years after they get out of the military. That's bad for a whole host of reasons. Don't do that. Keep working out. Eat right. Like, it, don't do that, right? That has negative health effects, both physical and mental. That's one. So stay in shape. Two, you're going to be lonely, most likely. You're going to go somewhere new. You're not going to have friends. You're going to, and you're going to be lonely. And guess what? It's tough for adults to make friends, but you got to do it anyways. So put the work in, put yourself in a position where you have to make some friends. Join a CrossFit gym, get in a small group at your church, you know, volunteer to coach something, whatever it is, force yourself to make friends, put yourself in those uncomfortable positions because you're going to be lonely. And it's important for you to make friends, especially outside of the military. And three, you're going to miss the sense of purpose, right? Whatever job you have, or maybe you're in school, it, it's going to miss, you're not going to have that same sense of purpose being part of something bigger than yourself than you had when you were in the military. So, but you can start immediately. I tell people like proactively start volunteering, get involved in something. Like we would obviously love for you to be a volunteer at Team Red, White, and Blue, but there's lots of other great options. Be a big brother, big sister, like be a deacon at your church, like whatever it is, it doesn't really matter. Like, but if you start doing those three things, when you transition, 
like the research is pretty clear. You're going to have a you're much more likely to have a successful transition than if you don't do those three things. And none of those involves like how big your VA disability check is every month. And, and I am in no way saying that, you know, I want to make sure that I'm clear. I'm in no way saying that if you, if you have some kind of medical condition, you shouldn't be, um, seeking treatment or care or disability compensation for it. What I'm saying is that the conversation I hear all the time is it's a, it's a race to see who can accumulate the highest percentage of benefits. And, and that's not the hallmark of a successful transition. You know, what you just said there, um, click something in my mind. Um, in the military, we had transactional and transformational leadership styles, right? You had that transactional leader um, that led through reward, rewards and punishments. I'm going to give you a, the, the coveted, you know, deputy S3 post or whatever, or, or, or I'm going to punish you with the deputy S3 yeah, post. Yeah. Sticks uh, and right? carrots, right? Right. You know, and so that's that transactional and it works very effectively in the short term. Um, but in the long term, it, it, it's not sustainable um, because once the rewards, once become habituated to the rewards um, or, you know, we just keep getting beat with the sticks, then, then we just, you know, get up and roll over. It's this idea of once the platoon sergeant walks around the corner, Joe's going to slack off because, you know, nobody's watching him. Then you have that transformational leadership that regardless of rewards or punishment, you're going to walk through fire for this particular leader. And every veteran that I've talked to about this transactional and transformational, I use it in the context of mental health is, you know, you can comply outwardly, but unless you change inwardly and have this transformation, um, then, then you're not going to be as successful in the long term. And to me, that just applied to many veterans are looking at transition as a transactional action when it really should be a transformational action. That's, that's what I just heard. Yeah. I mean, listen, you hear, you get the, the kind of barracks lawyers that we all know and love and there is, and, and the tap process is structured in a way that it is it's benefit centric it's it's showing veterans how and how to acquire benefits and how to use benefits and and again i'm not saying that that's bad or should completely go away what i'm saying is that like that's not the hallmark of a good transition and that this well-being centric approach to it which we need to get more ingrained into the transition process out of the military is is more important but the thing about it that I always tell veterans is like, no one needs to do this for you. You can do all of this yourself, right? So like, you know, if you've got like, give rid of the excuses and do it yourself. You can do all of this yourself. Right. And, and sometimes it's a lack of awareness. The individual doesn't realize that that's what, um, you know, uh, that's, that that's what they need. You know, and I've, I've had some discussions. Obviously, I had Jared, Lyon, uh, Jared Lyons on the show before in, um, really talking about these new age VSOs, however we want to call them, but, um, they're designed to give the veteran what they're looking for, right? Um, if you want to, you know, chainsaws in the woods, then, then it's Rubicon, right? If you want to, you know, help kids in schools, then it's Travis Mannion Foundation. If it's fitness, it's RWB. Mission continues, community, you know, things. Um, and so these, you each serve the same need, but in a different way. And you give the veteran different options. You know, I need to eat, but what do I want to eat? And, and then I can choose this. Well the, well, the thing I would say that is great about it is that you don't have to choose one, right? right. We, we all work together and I, there's nothing that would make me happier than to see a veteran at a team RDB run on Thursday night 
and then at you know chainsaw training for for team rubicon on sunday and then you know at a sva you know they're going to school so they're at like an sva function or you know pick the uh, what the thing that i think is different and unique is that like i think we all realize that what's good for veteran like uh fiefdom building is not what is best for veterans and so not only is it a menu of options, but it's it's good and it's beneficial for veterans to interact in a bunch of different ways because we all have different things that we do and we're not trying to be all things to all people. Right. And, and I think and even going back to this idea of this transactional mindset, that's what the Fifeton building does is, you know, my numbers have to be higher or my, you know, um, my events have to be larger. And, and if they're not, then there's you know, there's something wrong with me or I have to help X number of veterans get this benefit. And it's more transactional. Whereas these, and, and especially I believe in, in me not being a millennial very much so. And, and then, you know, neither you as well, but this idea of, um, yeah, I think we're, we would be considered Gen Xers, right? Yeah. Right. Uh, nah. But still there's this sense of purpose and meaning. It's an emerging out of it's, we're talking about social corporate social responsibility and things like that. Um, and so this sense of satisfaction is more important than the monetary gain for, for a lot of veterans that I've looked at. You know, I'll take a job that satisfies me as long as it can pay the bills more than a job that, like you said, you were working in the corporate sector and you weren't satisfied. Um, and that's where I see. From the wellness standpoint, and this very much is a psychological, emotional standpoint that I see Team RWB providing support for. Yeah, I mean, one hundred percent. Need to sign you up to be one of our spokesmen. Well, that's what this is, right? This is the uh, the, it, but it is. It's 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 all of these organizations solving the same problems, um, solving the needs of the veteran. Not even a, that it's a problem. But it's addressing these transitional, uh, transitional stress. Our, our colleague Megan Mobs uh, talked about this in her article of it's, it's not all PTSD. It's not TBI. If that may be a part of it, but you know, hundreds of people have succeeded. John McCain was a POW, probably had some traumatic stress reaction, but look at how successful he was in his life in spite of the challenges that he had. Well, well, the, Dwayne, the thing that people don't talk about is all of the conversations are not all, I don't want to mischaracterize a large amount are that I hear are about like returning veterans back to the mean, right? Like getting them back up to being on par, you know, with their, they talk about their military service, like it's some kind of disease, right? And you've got to get recovered from that. And some, some people absolutely have experiences in their military service that they need to get through, but no one ever talks about the resiliency and the positive effects that come from military service. That's not the conversation. So like, I, I just think the conversation needs to be about thriving and needs to be about leading a, a, at an above average level and not be focused on like, let's, let's bring these poor broken veterans back up to normal, you know, because they've been hindered by their military service and we got to like, cure them from that. It's like, no, you, you probably learned a lot of really good stuff and probably had a lot of very formative experiences, resiliency building experiences while you're in the military, but like that somehow gets lost in the conversation. I don't know. Right. No, I agree. I mean, I think there's this idea of, you know, it's binary, either you put it all behind you um, or you just live it every day. You know, the Saigon is, is in my head all the time. Um, it, but 
but what I'm hearing you and, and, and I see it too, is we have to filter, right? Let, let's filter out the, the negative things that happen. You know, let's, let's take care of the, um, the reactions to toxic leadership that we endured, or let's address these issues that, that, you know, yes, it's stressful, it's dangerous and it's challenging, but we can minimize those while maximize the benefit. But if we just try to, you know, cauterize everything, we lose the good as well as the bad. Absolutely. Yep. And and this is another thing that I've been watching Team RWB and, and, and some of the other organizations as well is you're not just making veterans feel better. Like you said, you're quantifying it, right? You're 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 actually researching it. Um, as you were talking about, you know, uh, Carolyn Angel, uh, but you actually um, did a, a journal article um, talking about. And I'll read the title here: Team Red, White, and Blue: A Community-Based Model for Harnessing Positive Social Networks to enhance enrichment outcomes in military veterans reintegrating a civilian life. I got to commend you. That is a very mental health professional journal kind of thing. Um, but, but really in that article, it talks about the, um, uh, the enriched life scale, right? So this is yeah. a scale that RWB developed um, to be able to measure. And this is what you were talking about, this measuring this purpose and meaning information. Yeah. I, I mean, it is a pretty well-known phenomenon that you can't trust people to that, that people will lie about how they're feeling. Right. So if I, if I just ask you, you know, Hey, Dwayne, like, how are you doing? Are you doing better than you were six months ago? You know, that I'm probably not going to get the, the, the clinical type of answer that I'm looking for. Right. It's at least not enough to make, to make large scale population wide decisions on, so we, you know, from a very early stage in the organization, we were like, okay, listen, we want to be an outcomes-based organization. What does that mean? Okay. That means you need to use some type of clinical instrument to measure what you're doing. And okay, we can do that. Um, okay. Which one do we use? Well, okay. There's this great one that measures grit or this great one that measures resiliency, or there's the, the VA has one called the M2CQ. Like you can use one of the, those. And we were like, eh, those are great tools, but that's not what we do. Our programs aren't designed to do any of those things. A, B, our organization is rooted in positive psychology, which is the study of what goes right in life. If you ever take any of those instruments, like they're very focused on the, what, what's going wrong in your life. And that didn't feel right to us either. And then we wanted something, you know, those are all at the risk of, you know, offending maybe some of your listeners who are mental health researchers, or professionals, like those are all top down kind of ivory tower instruments. And we wanted something that was bottom up kind of by veteran for veterans. So we went down the road of working with an academic partner in, in Syracuse university and developing our own scale. So we, we have an instrument called the enriched life scale. We basically worked on it for half a year or half a decade in developing it. And it is a, it's a clinical instrument that you can use to quantify the amount of enrichment, the amount of kind of health and people and purpose that you have in someone's life. And what's important about this is we're, you know, this just got done. So we're starting to actually operationalize it in our organization right now, but this is not just a team RWB instrument and it's not even specific just to veterans. Um, we, we made this and then gave it away in the sense that anyone can use it. So that long kind of verbose title that you read, that's in an actual medical journal. It's in translational behavioral medicine. So again, we, we have two articles published in actual medical journals where we're trying to say, this is us saying, okay, we want to change the conversation about 
what veteran support and veteran transition looks like. And we're going to try to create knowledge and help do that and create knowledge and then give it away. See, and this has been one of my frustrations with um, with organizations is there's a separation between giving the veteran what they need and the mental health. Mental health is always this. If if nothing else works, there's a shed in the back called mental health, and that's where you go. It's a a pre crisis, uh, immediately pre crisis, during crisis, or post crisis intervention. Um, and and this is what I appreciate. And some of this definitely what the Warrior Wellness Alliance is trying to do is to say it, it's the whole thing, right? It's it's the entire jar, not just parts of the jar, um, of integrating mental health and wellness into. A veterans transition. And like you said, TAPS doesn't do that because it is a very transactional, whereas the psychological fitness, the psychological wellness, that's a transformational aspect. It's harder to give. It's harder to, to, to provide. Um, if you're, if you're, if it's a taboo subject, uh, but also, like you said, it's hard, harder to measure whether or not, you know, somebody got it. Yeah, you can't you can't pull the two things apart, really. I mean, nobody really understands the complexity of the mind-body connection. I think that's pretty safe to say. It's super complicated at this point, but it's real. I just record I'm not like I don't mean to like plug my own podcast here, but I just recorded one this last week with a guy named Chad Call, who is like the head medical doctor like in the he's like the 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 chief of aerospace. He was the former chief of aerospace medicine for the Air Force. He's now the head like medical doctor for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He's like the head doctor in DOD. And then this guy named Jim Carroll, who's a magician and mentalist, he's like a memory expert. And the whole podcast was on this, this like mental wellness and the importance of like cognitive healing and physical healing and how there's this connection and people don't really understand it yet, but it's real. And how can we get, pull this into like the military medical industrial complex? Um, and so people talk about like physical health and mental health and emotional health. Like they're these like separate things that don't exist. I know we have to talk about them in different ways because they are, they are different, but they're all like, we don't talk about the fact that they are all inextricably linked. And I don't think anybody really knows like exactly how and the depth of what those links are. Right. And and they're not, you know, in, in different times and different ways, we can be in different places on each of those continuums. Right? Absolutely. You know? Daily. Day, well, even right. sub daily, right? Like you might wake up in the morning and be ha- just having a crappy day and something, you know, go for, a, here's my challenge. You wake up and you're having a bad day, go for a run and see how your day changes. I bet it's better. Right. And so that's, that's a swing just in one day. And then it's hour to hour, day to day, week to week. Like these things move all the time. And you have to be mindful of it and you have to be mindful in managing it and where you're at on it. And this is where I, 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 and I'm getting the impression that I'm liking to see is that, um, if all a veteran needs to, to, you know, um, establish wellness or develop wellness is to be involved in RWB or mission continues Rubicon or whatever it is. Um, if that's all they need, then that's good. And if more is needed, then, you know, the organization is saying, Hey, there's something more here that just this, you know, every Thursday night isn't doing it for you. Let me connect you to, um, you know, this other individual in the community mental health professional that understands veterans, right? Yeah. That's, that's the whole point of the Warrior Wellness Alliance, right? right. Is us, uh, the peer organizations that you're talking about. We, we don't have clinicians on our team. Like we're not trained in mental health. We're not mental health professionals, but we have people, we have veterans who come through us who are, who need, need more than what we can give them. Right. And so our hope is that we can 
via there's there's hey, listen every town in america has great local resources and it's important to know what those local resources are but there's also fantastic national resources to be able to link veterans up with you know the warrior care network or the marcus institute for brain health or you know the cohen veterans network or whoever the right resource is to get them that additional help that they need Right. And and that's the, it's just like we did in the military. Let's solve the problem at the lowest level with the least amount of resources um, and, and, and solve the problem, right? To, to actually solve the problem. Um, and I would say probably six years ago, it used to be this, this, um, this fiefdom that you were talking about is all, all the veteran needs is what I do very well. And so if the veteran doesn't benefit from what I do very well, then there's something wrong with the veteran, not what I'm doing. Yeah. Two other things on that or, and this is where we have very well-intentioned people where they would have the thing that worked for them and they would want to share it with the rest of the world. Right. So, you know, I've got a hammer, the rest of the world looks like a nail. So fly fishing was the thing that made my, or horses or wilderness trips or basket weaving or whatever that is. Like, that's the thing that helped me and my darkest days and helped me, you know, kind of get through my struggles. So I want to share that with everybody. And I want to share that with the world, right? That is so well-intentioned that is so noble, but that does not a clinical solution make. Right. And so I think that's the other part of this, you know, I think we're past that a little bit, but the other thing six or eight years ago, Dwayne, to your point is we were still in a place where no one wanted to talk about mental health. Like it, there was still this like mental health equals weakness, like kind of thing. And it probably it still exists a little bit, but nothing like it was eight years ago. At least now we're having open and honest discussions about this. So that's been a huge kind of, you know, change, I think in the last six years. No, I, I agree. And I'm starting to see it too. And this idea of um, I'm starting to see veterans come to me before crisis happens. Um, you know, much like, um, you know, when you get a toothache, you don't wait until the tooth is abscessed to go to the dentist, right? Um, when things are start to, to, you know, go a little bit wrong. Hey, let me reach out. And it's starting to become more common. Um, but the other thing that I've noticed is veterans need permission to access mental health, not permission like, you know, I will allow you to, but it's okay to. And that's another thing that I'm seeing is integrating this health and wellness into these organizations and, and going at it from a transformational standpoint. Um, you're giving veterans permission to say, it's okay to talk about this stuff. It's okay to be lonely. It's okay to feel like you don't have a purpose and you're not alone in those aspects. Um, so reach out and get the help because it's okay if you do. Yeah. It, it, it's not only okay, like it happens to everybody. And I always say to veterans, I'm like, listen, you, you were taught to take action when you were in the military. Right? No, no one ever taught you to sit around and do nothing. You were taught to take action. And this is nothing different. If you feel like you're in this place, not only is it okay for you to, to go seek resources, you should be seeking resources, right? Like this isn't a permission-based thing. Like this is an obligation, right? You, you should be going to get if you feel this happening, um, don't wait for someone to, to, to tell you to so, like, certainly sometimes it takes that, but you know, it go do it. Like, you know, take the action to get ahead of it. A mentor of mine, I've mentioned on the show a couple of times, he was on the show uh, way back in December 17, but I use it all the time. He said, most veterans wait for one of three things to get them into treatment, their lawyer, their lover, or their liver. 
right? So it's health-based and, you know, my relationship's about to go down the tube and I'm standing in front of a judge. At that point, something very bad has gone wrong. More things may happen in the future. Now I'm going to seek help. Um, and that's where I see, again, um, the peer network organizations. Uh, and again, in, and I mentioned that I had Jared Lyon on the show and, and Jared had said, um, in the beginning, that that wasn't a part of what Student Veterans of America was talking about. And he said over the past several years, it has emerged into because, like you said, it is a whole person thing. It's a whole veteran thing that we need to address and get it before the the check engine light comes on. Yeah. I love Jared Lyon in SBA, by the way. Great guy. Bet he has the best beard in the business. Yeah. So we can all aspire to um, – and he's a data guy. This we were talking about that too, man. He is all about the numbers because you know it, it doesn't matter. What is this? Um, uh, a few good men. It doesn't matter what we believe. It only matters what we can prove, right? And that's where uh, that I appreciate from an outsider standpoint, from a mental health professional standpoint, um, recognizing what these new organizations and relatively new organizations, although we're going on you know a decade. But what these organizations do are providing the veterans what they need and actually being able to prove that what they're doing is effective. Yeah, and and being okay with saying, okay, maybe what we're doing is not working here, right? And uh, and saying, okay, we're taking a database, uh, an evidence-based approach to this, and this is not working as well as we thought it was or had hoped it was. And it's okay to talk about that. Let's change something so that it works better. Right. Being able to have those conversations and not be scared. I think the big thing for in the nonprofit world, it's like working with funders who have that same mindset. So you don't feel like you need to hide that stuff from funders or they're going to pull their funding. Working with funders who say, hey, we believe in what you're doing. We want to help make you better. Let's talk about what we're finding so that we can continually improve it or maybe dump the stuff that's not working and double down on the stuff that is. Yeah, I think that in uh, and, and this is where you said before, um, a lot of the organizations that start out in, in the mid to late thousands, um, they weren't sustainable um, because it, it was um, it came from a feel good place. But we need a uh, we need a balance of both heart and brain. Yeah. Listen, you can say whatever you want to say about this. We've been at the war almost we've been at war almost 20 years now and it's just it, the general public does not care about it now the way that they did. They don't, they still are very supportive of the veterans, but they don't, it's not front of mind like it was eight or 10 years ago. So for veteran serving organizations that, that makes it harder both to raise the funds that you need to run your programs, but just from a general kind of public awareness perspective of this. Um, that's one thing. And, you know, you could get away with uh, our old executive director, Blaine Smith, always used to say this. He's like, listen, you could there you could like wrap yourself in an American flag and pray to a, a wounded veteran around and like raise money back then. And you can't do that anymore. It, you have to be able to demonstrate, you know, an outcomes based approach to this. And it's it's harder. The funders are getting more sophisticated, which is this is all good. But we're, we're, we're trending in the right direction. But it's, you know, it's 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 hard work. The organizations need to change um, and adapt, and, and that's definitely what I see uh, Team RWB has done. Um, it, this has been great, uh, JJ. I'd like to give you an opportunity. If somebody wanted to find more about Team RWB um, or you specifically, where, they, where can they find you on the Internet, social media, stuff like that? 
Yeah, I mean, so I would direct people to go to teamrwb.org. And if you're not a member, you can you can sign up to be a member. It's free. So just go to join the team. And then you can also look at the chapters or events page. And I mean, we, we host literally tens of thousands of events every year around the country. So find one that's going on around you and show up. It's, you know, when we say event, it is, this could be a couple people running in a park, uh, everything from there up to, we have run as one, which is this huge, massive event, but you know, it's a joint event with like six different organizations this weekend. So that runs the gamut. Um, but the important thing is to just, you know, come out and get involved and meet some new people, you know, probably, I'm not a super kind of social media guy. So, I mean, you can find me on like the normal places, Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, but I try to, if you, if you want to really know what I'm is in my mind, I mean, I think I have 120, I'm the host of our team writer B podcast. And there's probably 120 episodes that you can listen to there. Uh, I prefer the more intimate forms of communication like that. So that would be where I would direct people to go. Yeah, that's great. I definitely was going to, um, uh, put a link to the podcast specifically in all different platforms that they can be found, but then also the website. So any last thoughts before we sign off here? Well, my last thoughts are that I've been looking over your shoulder and looking at your book selection and, uh, and I like what I see here. I see some Walter Isaacson. I see, I, I see some, you've got a good mix of fiction and nonfiction. I'm a big reader myself, so I'm always curious. What, what are you reading right now? Um, interestingly enough, I've finally gotten around to decision points, uh, by, by, uh, President Bush. Um, but also, so I'm reading one. Well, let's, <laughs> this is a problem with readers, right? So, um, I'm rereading a, a fantasy, uh, series, um, that I've read before. You know, that's sort of that, uh, uh that re-experiencing, right? Just that familiarity. I'm reading decision points. Um, I'm taking time in the morning to do that. Uh, and then I'm listening to, uh, Brene's Brown's, um, her leadership book. So yeah, I've got three going on. You know, she talks about team red, white, and blue in that book, right? I haven't gotten to that point. Yeah. I haven't gotten there yet. Yeah, she does. Um, she's been a long time before she was, her Ted talk came off and she became uber famous. She was, uh, she still is involved with us a little bit, but much more back then. So it was, she's great. Yeah. I am, uh, I'm constantly, I'm, I'm a consumer of information. I try to be a lifelong learner, so I'm constantly charging through books. But I've been reading the classics recently, um, going back and rereading some of the old ones. And you forget how great – I think that we do – I think we really like do this wrong to kids. We force them to read these great books in middle school and high school before they're ready, and you turn them off to it. And then most people don't ever come back to them, and hopefully someone will share them with you. I just reread uh, Robinson Crusoe fantastic book read it right. in high school hated it you know and and that's something that's uh, that's very important is this idea of being a lifelong learner right you know um veterans seem to forget that and forget how to um how to continue to be learning uh we actually had back on episode 122 um we had uh, pat williams on the show and he wrote his book uh, character carved in stone about uh, uh the west point virtues the the uh, the benches that are that are out there on um on the campus there uh and he said in that in our conversation but also in the book he said that he quoted president truman that said um not all readers will be leaders but all leaders will be readers you can't be a leader without studying anything whatever you want to study but you but you're not going to be able to lead in an organization if you are not reading and consuming knowledge 
And, and being reflective is the other thing that I think is important. My, so my favorite interview question, if anyone listening to this ever interviews with me here, I'm telling you my favorite question is tell me something that you've changed your mind about recently and why. I think it's so important to be, to be reevaluating how we think about the world based off the information that we have around us. And I tell people all the time, like I reserve the right mind to, you know, I will, I could change my mind about whatever the thing is that we're talking about tomorrow. If I'm presented with new information, you know, and I just think it's so important to be introspective and be reflective and say like, okay, let me reevaluate what I'm doing. Let me reevaluate how I think about things based off what I'm, what I've learned and that, and what I'm learning is, is ever changing. It's always happening. And I can tell you, um, I don't think it's necessarily something that changed my mind, but deepened an understanding, um, is your concept of the benefits being transactional. And that's literally just, you know, within our conversation, this idea of how do we make transition transformational instead of transactional? And how do we describe that? Um, it, it, which is exactly that. And, and this is why I love these platforms is to have these real and honest conversations. You and I could be sitting down and having a beer or a coffee or whatever we have, and you and I can have this great conversation. But once we get up from the table, it's gone forever. This kind of conversation is what veterans can and should need to hear in capturing this for future veterans to not mis- make the same mistakes that we make. Yeah. I mean, if I, if I was king for a day and I could change the tap process, right, I, I would say to veterans, okay, I want this to be, I want your focus. A successful transmission is one in which you have increased your well-being, at, you know, at the end of it. And I would talk about those three things I talked about before. I would say like, you want to be in a year or two years or five years from now, if you want to have made a successful transition, if you do these three things right now, you will be much more likely to have made that happen. And you can do them all yourself. All it takes is elbow grease. So get after it. Couldn't have said it better myself. Those are uh, those are some great words to uh, to leave off the show. I really appreciate you coming on the show today, JJ. Yeah, no problem, Dwayne. Sorry, we had a uh, little bit of a snafu getting me on here, which was completely my fault. So I want to publicly apologize, but I'm glad we were able to make it happen. Good things come to those who wait. I hope it was good. I guess we'll uh, the ultimate judge is if people listen to it and like it. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, where we're trying to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health. It was great to hear JJ's thoughts on post-military life. As I mentioned, this is a part of a series highlighting the partners of the Warrior Wellness Alliance, a program of the George W. Bush Institute. They're bringing together organizations that are serving veterans, like Team RWB and Student Veterans of America, which we featured in Episode 126, with mental health providers serving veterans, such as the Cohen Veterans Network, featured in Episode 8, and the Wounded Warrior Project's Warrior Care Network, featured in Episodes 92 and 131. As you can tell by the conversation, there were a couple of things that JJ said in this episode that struck me, including the need to view a service member's transition out of the military as a transformational process and not a transactional process. That's an idea that probably deserves an entire episode of its own. The other theme that I think it's important to highlight, though, is that the things that veterans need to be successful in their post-military life is entirely within their own hands. Sure, maintaining fitness, making new friends, and getting involved in community activities is not going to pay the bills, but it's sure going to give us more emotional and psychological wellness so that we can figure out how to pay those bills on our own. 
The concepts of empowerment and self-efficacy are important ones for veterans to remember. If they have them, then they're much more likely to have the post-military life they both desire and deserve. Thanks for taking the time to listen. If you want to find the show notes for this episode, go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash HST133. If you want to show the support for the work that we're doing, make sure to subscribe on your podcast player of choice. We're always looking for guests, either veterans or those who support them. You can drop me a line at info at veteranmentalhealth.com to recommend guests, or you can go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash guest to fill out a suggestion or request. Just a reminder that the guests and information in this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be considered professional advice. I am a therapist, but I'm not your therapist. If something you've heard makes you think that you should talk to somebody, then reach out to do so. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use his track Not Alone from his album Combat Medicine. Doc's trying to bring the discussion about veteran mental health out of the darkness, and you can see all of his work at therealdoctod.com. Make sure to join us for the next episode. Hit subscribe on your podcast player so you don't miss it. Until then, remember veterans, you're not alone. Ever. The struggle is real, found a piece and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-creating enemies Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic Tennessee, embrace my ability
Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military, but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.